you're listening to the Depends on How You Look at It podcast, and I'm your host, Isaiah Bridge. Well, thank you for tuning in to Depends on How You Look at It. Today on the show, it's going to be very controversial. This is probably going to be one of my most controversial episodes because we're going to be talking about the nature of hell. Is hell eternal conscious torment? And I'm going to be playing an interview I did with Chris Date, and he is very well known for his work with Rethinking Hell and his advocacy of conditional immortality or sometimes called annihilationism. Now, this is one of those episodes that I actually hold the view of the person I'm interviewing. I I am a believer in conditional immortality, and I believe the nature of hell is the death penalty. I believe final punishment is death, annihilation. Um, I don't believe in eternal conscious torment. I'm not a universalist. I don't believe everyone's going to be saved or anything like that. But I believe the Bible is clear that on the day of judgment, the resurrection of the just and the unjust, that those who have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life will receive eternal life with Jesus Christ, salvation. But those who do not have their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, those who are the damned, they will suffer the second death, just like Revelation says. The question is, what is the second death? Well, I believe it is just that. It is death, the death penalty. The Bible is emphatically clear that the wages of sin is death. Now the question is, does death mean something more than cessation of life? Simply, I mean, does it mean more than how we use it in everyday life? When you say someone died, you mean they died. Their life is no longer in their body. They're, they're dead. But a lot of people import another meaning onto death, like spiritual death, and that it means something more than merely cessation of life. We're going to talk about that in the interview, and I think Chris goes over that very well. But I just want to tell you to keep your mind open, because I'm guessing this is not your view. You've probably been taught that hell is a lake of fire that is eternally uh, burning, eternal conscious torment, where there's no rest day or night. Yeah, that's in the Bible, but we have to examine what that means in light of the context. So keep an open mind. Try to understand this view and what we're saying. Uh, I've been hesitant to really talk about this because it's not something I really debate. It's not something I'm incredibly passionate about. Chris is because he's been debating this for a long time, doing ministry with Rethinking Hell. Um, but this really isn't my area of expertise other than I do believe in conditional immortality. So I hope this episode is fruitful and that you would at least walk away thinking about your traditions. If you walk away still convinced of eternal conscious torment, that's fine. I don't... I don't see the need to argue about it or anything like that, but I would like you to think through the arguments being made, and not just the arguments, but really just the exegesis, the way Chris will go through the text and talk about what the texts are really saying and what they're not really saying, and what traditionally we've imported onto the text. That is what convinced me into conditional immortality because my traditions were imported onto much of the text that I was reading instead of just letting the Bible say what it says. Now, this is a debate that's going to go on and on and on, and that's great, and I don't think anyone should separate over it, but this is the show. Uh, depends on how you look at it, and this view needs to be talked about because there is merit for it, and it's not heresy. It is ancient, 
and Chris will get into that a little bit as well. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this interview. Well, I'm excited to have Chris Date back on the show for the third time. At this rate, I think we're going to have to change the name of the show to depends on how Chris looks at it. But we're going to be talking about what Chris is most known for, his work with Rethinking Hell. And we're going to be talking about conditional immortality, or sometimes called annihilationism. So Chris, I think everybody knows um, most of your background, but I would like to hear um, what, how did you get involved in Rethinking Hell? And we'll just start the conversation there. Sure. Um, so when I... Um, in 2010, 2011, I think it was, I, somewhere around, well, shoot, my own memory's bad. Anyway, somewhere in the late 2000, the late aughts, or right on the boundary between 2010 and 2011, I started my own personal podcast called The Apologetics, and we've talked about that. Um, and as part of that show, I interviewed guests, um, many of whom shared my view on the particular topic about which I had them on my show. And in other cases, I held to a different view than theirs, but I was comfortable having them on the show to discuss it because I didn't consider their the view that I had them on to, to represent to be um, outside of the boundaries of orthodoxy. And I wanted to encourage my listeners to um, consider and, and to, to, to carefully consider the variety of views within Christianity that there are on a variety of topics. Well, one of those topics was the nature and duration of hell. Um, I, at the time, every once in a while, was involved in another uh, person's ministry. Her name is Dee Dee Warren, and at the time, she had a ministry called the Preterist Blog and Podcast. And uh, along with me, another person who occasionally contributed to that ministry was uh, Glenn Peoples. And um, Glenn Peoples and I got into a conversation at one point. And I was challenging his physicalism. Um, that was the discussion you and I had, I think, the first time you had me on the show. And yes. um, and uh, I pushed back on his physicalism by uh, quoting Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says, don't fear the uh, man who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear God who can – or fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. I challenged on that, and I said, look, doesn't this seem pretty clearly to indicate that human beings are both body and soul, not just body? Um and he uh, pushed back. I mean, he 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 gave me uh, an answer to why um, it wasn't as much of a challenge as I thought it was. But he also pointed out, but Chris, and I'm paraphrasing what I remember him saying, but Chris, you're a believer in eternal torment. So what do you make of what Jesus here says about the soul being destroyed in, in hell? And that started a conversation with him in which I said, well, but Jesus says in Mark 9, 48, their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. Doesn't that prove eternal torment? And he said to me, go look at what Jesus is quoting. And when I saw th that Jesus was quoting a text in Isaiah, maybe we'll get to this later in this discussion, um, and I realized that that verse Jesus is quoting um, – does not at all support the doctrine of eternal torment, and it actually seems to work against the doctrine of eternal torment. That got me wondering if perhaps I was wrong to have been a believer in eternal torment. The, these, you know, at, what at the time was my first ten years of my faith. So, um, because of that experience, I had a guest on my show named Edward Fudge. Um, it, it, I, I had him on first to discuss the movement known as the Churches of Christ, um, but then I had him on to discuss his view of hell and the book that he had just published the third edition of called The Fire That Consumes. And um, 
I had him on and I gave him the first hour of our two hours long interview. Um, I gave him that time to tell me about himself and to present a positive case for his position. And then I spent the second hour throwing every imaginable um, uh, objection to his view that I could think of um, uh, and, and, and gave him the opportunity to present his answers to those objections. And suffice it to say for now that um, in the course of preparing for that interview and conducting it, I went from being a confident believer in eternal torment to being on the fence. Um, he didn't convince me right then and there. But he got me on the fence. And in the months that followed, I consumed every every sermon, every book, every article, you know, everything I could find. Uh, and and also what I mean is I consumed a bunch of resources in defense of eternal torment um, and was not impressed by what I was seeing there. Um, I had a guest, another guest on my show named Larry Dixon, the author of a book called The Other Side of the Good News. He I had him on to, to defend eternal torment and I was not impressed by his um participation there. And so toward the end of that year, again, I, th I think this, I think we're here talking 2011. Toward the end of that year, I participated in my very first formal moderated debate on anything at all. And what I did was I, I was pretty close to being convinced of the view I'm going to be representing here today. And so I said, I'm going to put this, this view that I'm now holding on to almost to the test, the test of debate. And suffice it to say that I and most people I think who listened to that debate felt that my view uh, that I was uh, loosely holding on to at the time was the winner. I mean, it held up under scrutiny better than my opponents. And so after that, I, I fully embraced this view and um, shortly thereafter was invited to uh, be a part of a new ministry that was starting up called Rethinking Hell. It was being started by a what is now a friend of mine named Peter Grice. Um, and there in the middle of 2012, we launched Rethinking Hell and started doing blogs and podcasts and all that, and the rest is history. But one thing I want to stress, though, is that throughout all of this process, and even to today, I've never had any sort of emotional or um, philosophical or moral objection or problem with uh, the doctrine of eternal torment. Um, very early on in my faith, I defended the doctrine of eternal torment when I encountered professing Christians who didn't believe in it. Um, and when I say professing Christians, I mean, like, in some cases, cultists, like Jehovah's Witnesses. And when they challenged me on the doctrine of hell, I did investigation and and, and learned how it is that the doctrine of eternal torment is uh, defended from Scripture. And I did defend it in Scripture. And as I mentioned earlier, I, I was pushing back on my friend Glenn Peoples on his view uh, – or. I started to push back on his view when I encountered that he held it. So I was I was not at all uh, questioning or troubled by the doctrine of eternal torment. I've been a Calvinist almost my entire faith, and I'm comfortable that God. I'm comfortable knowing that God is sovereign and He's perfect holiness, and whatever He has told us in Scripture, He's going to do. I can trust that that's perfectly just and pure, perfectly holy, um, even if I uh, can't understand why He might do what He might choose to do. So I was never. I never had any problems with the doctrine of eternal torment. But when I went into this interview um, prepared, that I mentioned with Edward Fudge, preparing for it and conducting it, and in the months that followed, becoming convinced of it, what what compelled me to embrace the view was what I found to be its biblical merits. It just did not seem to me any longer, and doesn't today, uh, that the doctrine of eternal torment 
holds up under biblical scrutiny. It just collapses like uh, so many cards in a house of cards. And I have, ever since very early on in my faith, been committed to the authority and infallibility, even inerrancy, of Scripture. And I had to follow where it leads, even though I knew um, that if I did— if I did embrace the view of hell that I'm going to be defending today, it would end up causing me a lot of grief. It would it would make me a pariah. It would cause me to lose respect in the eyes of a lot of people. It would close ministry doors. Um, but even though I knew that that risk was there, I had to follow where I saw scripture leading and ultimately embrace the view that we're going to be discussing today. So hope, that was a long-winded answer, but hopefully that gives you an answer to the question you asked. No, it actually it dovetails into um, you know the second question I'm going to ask you is now we got your background of how you arrived there. So for the listeners who are maybe not that familiar with this debate, I imagine most people that are listening hold to eternal conscious torment, the idea, the the doctrine that at final punishment on the last day, the the wicked, those who are not saved, will be cast into the lake of fire where they will be eternally tormented. And there's no rest, and it is eternal, and they are conscious. That's kind of where it comes from, and we might abbreviate that to ECT. So, Chris, on the opposite end of the spectrum, well, not quite opposite, but what is conditional immortality? What, Why is it called conditional immortality? How does it all work? Yeah, very good. So um, you mentioned uh, – uh, you offered a very short summary there of the doctrine of eternal torment, um, but it's not a fully – a fully accurate one, and and uh, that's not a criticism against you. I, I think you probably were uh, presented it the way you did to be um, fair to how it's typically um, spoken about. Um, most people, when they talk about the doctrine of eternal torment, they just think suffering forever. And if you were to press them, many people who who th- who describe hell in that way will say, even if they they may not even realize they're saying it, but what they'll say is it's 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 where you go when you die, so your body's dead, your soul goes to hell and suffer and starts suffering there, and remains there for eternity. All right. So so for most people who believe in eternal hell, they think that this eternal suffering is as a disembodied soul after death um, without ever being embodied again. All right. Um, So it'll just be a, a disembodied soul in torment for all eternity. But if you look at church history, you'll find that from the earliest Christian defenders of this view, eternal torment, which were in the latter half of the second century with Tatian and Athenagoras, from them all the way through the 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 um, patristic era, through the scholastic and medieval eras, through the Reformation, through the Great Awakening, even into today, even to t- today, the most learned, the most educated, most thoughtful, most articulate um, theologians who have uh, affirmed eternal torment have said that no, they these are not these damned are not disembodied souls. They, You see, all Christians believe in a doctrine of general resurrection. Um, whether you're a premillennialist or whether you're an awe or postmillennialist, you believe that one day all the dead will be will have been raised, saved and the lost. Um, they will be raised from their graves. Their bodies will be put back together, reunited with their disembodied souls or, or their, their thitherto disembodied souls. And they will then, from that point on, live physically forever in either um, the good place or the bad place. Um, 
literally live forever and literally be bodily immortal. Um, if you look through the statements of the theologians I've got in mind and we'll be talking about um, uh, in an upcoming conference and have talked about many times, they will explicitly and without reservation say that the resurrected unsaved, the resurrected damned, the lost, whatever, their bodies, their resurrection bodies will be made every bit as immortal as the resurrected bodies of the saved. Um, the way that this is often um, couched in terms meant to hide and obfuscate what they're saying is they'll say things like the lost will be raised uh, raised with a body fit for eternal punishment. Mm -hmm. But that's just speaking gibberish. What they mean is a body that is immortal and will never, ever, ever die. So the, my point of all of this is just to say that according to the Christian doctrine of eternal torment – the resurrected lost will be made – not just their souls, but their bodies will be made immortal, and these damned will live physically forever in hell as immortals. Um, so you might call doc the doctrine of eternal torment a form of universal or unconditional immortality. There's no condition that any human being has to meet to be made um, immortal upon resurrection by God, because God's going to do that universally for all human beings. All right. And, and incidentally, this is true of universalism as well. So both the traditional view of hell as eternal torment and the doctrine of universalism are both forms of universal, unconditional immortality. But that's why the view I'm here to represent and defend is called conditional immortality, because unlike believers in eternal torment and universalism, we conditionalists, which is just a short way of saying believers in conditional immortality, we think that this embodied, uh, everlasting, ongoing life and immortality is something that God is only going to grant to those who meet a particular condition, and that condition is the condition of being saved. So in our view, yes, everybody will be raised from the dead, both the saved and the lost, and they will stand before the throne. But and like our eternal torment and universalism believing brothers and sisters in Christ, um, we believe that the saved at that point will be made bodily immortal. They will be made incapable of ever dying again. Um, but where we part ways with believers in eternal torment and universalism is that we say that the lost, the resurrected lost, will remain every bit as mortal as they were when they uh, prior to the point when they had died. And their punishment, um, it, when they are judged and sentenced to hell, will not be immortality and everlasting life in torment, as the doctrine of eternal torment teaches, but rather their penalty, their, their punishment will be death. They will be they will be violently executed like Christ was, like the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah were, like the the inhabitants most inhabitants of the world when God sent the flood uh, through which Noah and his family were saved on the ark. Um, the, the wicked on this last day, having been raised, will be judged, sentenced to death. They'll be violently killed, um, and they will never live or experience anything ever again. And that word experience there is why this view is sometimes called annihilationism. Because going back to that verse I mentioned earlier, Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says, Don't fear man who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who could destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. We look at that and we say – um, the scriptures are unambiguously clear that the resurrected lost will literally die a second time and never live again. And Jesus says that that death, right, that lifelessness, that privation of life that is applied to the bodies of the wicked in hell will also be applied to their souls. And so they will completely cease to exist as conscious beings altogether. 
Um, so, so that's in a nutshell the difference between conditional immortality and the doctrine of eternal torment. Eternal torment says immortality it will be will be infused into the bodies of all resurrected human beings, which is all human beings. Um, and they will live physically forever as as embodied immortals forever in torment. Whereas we say no, um, immortality is given only to those who meet the condition of being saved, and only they will be made immortal and capable of living forever. The lost will literally be killed, destroyed, and cease to be alive, and will cease to experience anything ever again for all eternity. And so God's cosmos, his, his all creation, will be entirely cleansed of all sin, all pain, all suffering, all evil, um, because the, the, all evildoers will have been obliterated. Great. I think that's one of the most compelling arguments for conditional mortality as well. The idea that God is going to completely do away with sin, not just put it in another place. Um, yeah. You know, so uh, the reason I described hell that way was just a basic um, here's what your normal person in the pew says, right? Right. And, you know, I, I was. I, I considered myself well studied on hell when I started listening to your podcast and, and rethinking hell and all the work you've done. And I was a believer in the traditional view of hell, eternal conscious torment. And to lay out what I believed, I believe that when someone died, uh, like Lazarus and the rich man, I believe there was this intermediate state and the, the unbelievers in torment until they are physically raised and made immortal again to to suffer forever with immortality so that's i i did look at eternal conscious torment the way it has been um theologically defined through the ages but a lot of people do just articulate it that well when you when you die you go to hell and, and that just did but because a lot of people forget the resurrection and the judgment and and the, the great white throne and that's why people like you and me are like no the resurrection is really really important we can't just throw this out it's it's it the christianity hinges on the resurrection itself yeah so well well i, I will add though i'll interject just to say that um i think there's another reason why it is sometimes articulated in the less precise way and that is um it, 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 believers in eternal torment who who want to defend it are increasingly um uh, challenged by the overwhelming and consistent biblical testimony that the punishment uh, awaiting the lost for their sins is death. It's not being alive. And they recognize that the um, express statements of Scripture about immortality and living forever are always to the saved, and, 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 and those things aren't given to the lost. And so I think what another motivation that causes a lot of defenders of eternal torment to couch eternal torment in terms only of suffering and, and, and sort of downplay, if not hide altogether, that they believe the resurrected lost will be made immortal and live forever is because they know – that the only they know that the only way around the biblical um, the, the the clear and consistent biblical testimony is to say that there is some important sense in which the lost in hell are indeed dead and forever. Um, of course, what they mean by that is you know uh, they'll they'll cash it out in terms of spiritual death and other things. But the point is they want to hide. Um, the, their their belief that the resurrected lost will be physically immortal and live physically forever because of how consistent the biblical testimony is against that notion. Um, 
And so, for example, you'll see um, in my debate in 2014 with Phil Fernandez, which people can find on YouTube by just searching for Chris Date Phil Fernandez, they'll see in that debate uh, Phil Fernandez, who's a friend of mine, by the way, and I like him and he likes me. But nevertheless, he alleged in the debate that I mischaracterized the doctrine of eternal torment because he says he doesn't believe that the wicked in hell will be immortal and alive. Um, and, and he chalked it up to past theologians just speaking sloppily. Well, I'm sorry, Phil. But when I, when you say that the past theologians have just been sp- talking sloppily, you're talking about 99% of Christians, you know, or more, all throughout church history, going back to the time of Tatian and Athenagoras, um, and, and I just think that's absurd. So I just want people to be aware that there is an attempt, um, whether noble or not, to obfuscate or hide this physically embodied nature of eternal hell um, in order to sort of sidestep the clear testimony of Scripture that the wicked will die rather than live forever. Yeah, and I just want to go on record and say I I am a conditionalist. I I hold to conditional immortality. I am not a zealot of it like Chris. I don't campaign (laughs) for it or anything. Um, But that's – Chris and I are just in different theological categories of what we're interested in. But – I, I want to say I arrived at this view through listening to Chris, the guys at Rethinking Hell, reading people like Edward Fudge. Uh, there's there's a lot of good material for it, and the Bible itself testifies for it, and we're going to get to that really soon. But I found myself, number one, like Chris was saying, I had to redefine eternal life and eternal punishment. I had to redefine the word death to mean something more. And I had to redefine the word life to mean something more uh, qualitative than quantitative. So that – me as a I want to be consistent, that really bothered me. And we're, we're going to ask Chris about those ideas about spiritual death uh, really soon. But so let's give eternal conscious torment its fair representation. So we're going to be uh, refuting the idea that they are resurrected immortally given immortal bodies bodies prepared for hell i used to say bodies prepared for hell and we're going to work on the text that seem to be speaking of that so chris are you ready to start the exegesis uh i'm always ready to do exegesis it's one of my favorite things in the world awesome well <laughs> i i hope these texts don't disappoint uh you uh listeners i, I tried to come up with uh one two three four five six big texts that you're probably thinking about in your head and if i miss some there's, there's a lot of text about final punishment. Go to uh, RethinkingHell.com. There's articles. There's books you can read. I'll let Chris uh, define that all at the end of the episode. But we're going to start with Matthew 25:46, And I, I hope you guys know this by heart. This is Jesus talking about when he returns. This is a final judgment uh, passage. And he's just got through talking about what what – defines someone who is saved and what defines someone who is not saved. And this is what he says to those who are are wicked. Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least one of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's Matthew 25, 45, and 46 from the English Standard Version. That's what I'm reading from today. So Chris... This says they go into eternal punishment mm. now, and it also says the righteous into eternal life. So I've often heard, well, you can't have eternal life without eternal punishment. So how do we how do we exegete this? 
Yeah, so firstly, I want to affirm and do affirm um, that the word eternal, the, the Greek underlying adjective is ionios, um, it means everlasting here, and it means it in both cases, both punishment and life. In other words, I'm not saying, and we at Rethinking Hell don't say, that the punishment of hell, um, which we are, which I've, as I've already indicated, is a death sentence, um, we're not saying that that punishment is temporary, that it lasts only a period of time and then it's over or anything along those lines. I think we do absolutely have to affirm that um, that we're dealing here with a parallel use of the word ionios. It means the same thing when it's describing punishment, and it means the same thing when it's describing uh, life. These are both equally everlasting in duration. The debate between these views is not between the duration of the punishment. That is a debate between universalists and us. They would have to say that the punishment isn't everlasting, and they would say that Ionios should be translated differently here. Um, but putting them aside, the, the debate between believers in eternal torment and conditionalists is not about the duration of the punishment. It's about the nature of that punishment. Um, and now there's there's a lot I'd want to do here if we had more time to exegete. Um, so, for example, I'd want to talk about the eternal fire phrase back in verse 41, but I want to be sensitive to your time so we can either talk about that later if it comes up or in the course <clears throat> or of a future round two or something. Oh, Chris, I'm I'm sorry that I, I glanced over that with my eyes. We're, we're here in Matthew 25. Let's let's talk about it, because in, in verse 41, he says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That seems pretty literal. So what's going on there? Yeah, well, okay. I'm glad that, that we do get to cover that phrase. So the, the question we have to ask is, um, what does Jesus mean by eternal fire? What sort of fiery, wrathful judgment of God is Jesus talking about? And, you know, the, the, the believer in eternal torment um, answers that question by trying to um, imagine what could possibly fuel an everlastingly burning fire, right? So very often the way it'll be said is um, the wicked will forever provide the fire of hell with the, with fuel to burn so that the fire can burn forever. And the only way that would be possible is if as people like Augustine and Minucius Felix said hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, which is that the fires of hell melt away, burn off the flesh of the wicked while simultaneously regenerating it. All right. Um, that's what. Wow. <laughs> I know. I know. But but that's let's let's not let's not just say we're incredulous and leave it at that. Um, it, it's at least within God's ability to do that if he so chose. So I don't want to just mock it. But the point is, the point I'm saying here is the the only argument here for eternal fire um, being a reference to eternal torment is the rational one that I just offered. The only way to fuel an everlastingly burning fire is with everlastingly living wicked people, right? But there are at least two problems with that. One is that we have other examples of um, God's fiery wrath burning before there was anybody ever in it. Um, the best example of it is the very lake of fire that we see uh, depicted in the imagery of the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 20. Um, that lake of fire has been burning for some indetermined uh, uh, period of time before anything is thrown into it. 
So, so the fact that you've got a fire burning in no way implies that the wicked are forever alive in it, fueling it. That's the first important thing. But more important than even that in, in undertaking a, an exegesis of this passage is to look at how Jesus himself uses the phrase earlier in this very book. So we're looking at Matthew 25, 41 right now, but if you go back to Matthew chapter 18, verse 8, Jesus says this, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. So far, so far, so good. Uh, but before I read the next verse, which is the critical factor here, note that the contrast Jesus is offering is between entering life maimed and not entering life at all. Mm-hmm. Now he goes on to verse 9 to, to offer a parallel to that eternal fire, and this is what's going to be really critical. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire, the Gehenna of fire. Now again, notice the contrast is between life maimed or no life at all. Um, but but even putting that aside, what's important here is that Jesus is offering a very typical Hebraic parallelism, a parallelism uh, in which eternal fire and hell of fire are virtually synonymous. They mean this, they're, they're meant to evoke the same idea. And this word translated hell is Gehenna, or in the Greek, Gehenna. And what's important about it is that that Greek word Gehenna is a New Testament Greek abbreviation and transliteration of an Old Testament phrase, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. And if you look at what the Valley of the Son of Hinnom would, uh, was pictured as being in the eschaton, in, in, the, in the final judgment, um, it's a place where God's enemies are destroyed, killed, slain. So, for example, in Jeremiah 7, um, beginning in uh, verse 31, Yahweh says through Jeremiah, they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, that's Gehenna, Gehenna. Um, to burn their sons and their daughters in, in fire. Therefore, in verse 32, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth because there's no room elsewhere, and the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. This scene of eschatological, fiery judgment of God um, in Jeremiah 7 is the scene that Jesus is evoking by using that Greek word Gehenna. He's recalling to his hearer's mind the Old Testament valley of the son of Hinnom, which the Old Testament promised would eschatologically become the place where God judges his enemies by killing them, by slaying them. So we know then what Jesus means by eternal fire. He's talking about the fiery wrath of God that kills and slays his enemies. He's not talking about fire that forever is uh, provided fuel by the bodies of the wicked that never die. Um, and so when Jesus uses the phrase eternal, oh, and, and by the way, if you, um, if lest there be any question that that's what Jesus is doing, just look at how his brother Jude, um, whether brother is literal or not, I think is, a, is an open question, but his brother Jude uses the phrase eternal fire in verse seven of his epistle. He says, um, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. He's he's recalling the fire that descended from God in heaven onto Sodom and Gomorrah and slayed them back in Genesis chapter 19. And if there were any question as to what whether that's what Jude has in mind, just look at the parallel in 2 Peter 2.6, in which Peter says that by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So now let me put all these pieces back together. So we, we've seen that Jesus uses the phrase eternal fire earlier to refer to the fiery judgment of God um, prefigured in the Old Testament um, Valley of the Son of Hinnom eschatology passages. Uh, and, and, and he evokes that picture as the Geena of fire, which he parallels with the phrase eternal fire. So when he talks about eternal fire, he's talking about the fiery wrath of God that kills his enemies, which is exactly how his brother Jude uses the phrase. So when he says in Matthew 25, 41, later in his life, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, that's what he's talking about, a fire that slays and kills and destroys God's enemies. So then in a a few verses later, verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We already know what the punishment is. It's death. And if that death lasts forever, in other words, if the resurrected lost are killed a second time and they never, ever live again, they never, never come back to life, then the punishment of death is eternal. It's an everlasting punishment. It's every bit as everlasting as the life into which the righteous are sent. But notice one more thing. This phrase, you know, this contrast Jesus offers, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The... um. The contrast is a judicial one, meaning you, 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 you either get one or you get the other. And what that means is that while the adjective Ionios, translated eternal, is indeed parallel, the noun that that adjective describes is virtual – those nouns have got to be opposed to one another. In other words, the punishment, the everlasting punishment cannot itself include everlasting life. And yet that's, as we've seen, precisely what the doctrine of eternal torment maintains um, will be the fate of the lost in hell. So what I'm so so what I'm arguing here, based on the context and based on the use of the phrase eternal fire earlier in Matthew and based on the mere contrast between eternal punishment and eternal life, is that the eternal punishment can't be an, a punishment that itself includes life or else everyone, everybody would be going into eternal life. The only way eternal punishment makes sense in this context, in its contrast with eternal life, is if the eternal punishment is one that excludes everlasting life. And that's that's the, the death penalty that I've been describing. Yeah, that is great because these are the kind of texts that uh, Chris says this all the time, or you say this all the time, Chris. You know, on the surface, it seems to be talking about, you know, eternal conscious torment, but if it's examined – it actually refutes it. That's and right. I, I find that very powerful. I'm not trying to steal the words out of your mouth, but I do find that powerful. I agree. Um, you know, for the sake of uh, going back to how I got how I got here personally, I'm a Calvinist. I'm all about the sovereignty of God, the way Calvinists articulate the word sovereignty, and I I really didn't have a moral or philosophical issue with eternal conscious torment either. I'm just a, uh, a Bible geek, and when I was listening to people like you and Glenn Peoples and, and, and Rethinking Hell in general, I was challenged just by exegesis. Just by exegesis, I was challenged. So I, I, wanna, I want people to know I didn't 
I didn't have this moral problem with God that I felt like I needed to go dig up a solution to. No, this this was kind of just it just kind of happened, if if that makes sense, Chris, because I think kind of happened for you as well. Um, you know, you mentioned Revelation, and I know people are foaming at the mouth because they're like, he's not dealt with Revelation yet. He just barely mentioned it. So let's go to Revelation chapter 14. And I'm going to read uh, verses 9 through 11, and this is about the mark of the beast and what happens. Pretty intense stuff. And another angel, a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured out. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So as an eternal conscious torment believer, I, I, I kind of hinged most of what I believed on this text. And, of course, redefining what words mean, like death and life that we were talking earlier. But this not only says that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, but it says even in the presence of the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ, which is God, the holy angels. I mean, this is like God is present and enjoying their torment. So how do we get through this? Well, so um, – Firstly, what's important to note before attempting any exegesis of anything that takes place in the book of Revelation is that we're not dealing with ordinary, straightforward discourse. You know, we're not talking about narrative. We're not talking about um, an epistle that, you know, in which uh, a theologian like Paul um, waxes eloquent on theological uh, teaching and stuff like that. That's, that's not what the genre of this is. This is a genre of literature known as apocalyptic literature. And um, the vast majority of the book of Revelation from about chapter four till uh, the beginning of chapter 22 um, records G uh, John's visionary experience on the island of Patmos. Um, these visionary experiences go back at least as early as Joseph um, when he was in prison um, because Potiphar's wife had lied and said that uh, Joseph had tried to um, sexually assault her or tried to, you know, whatever. Um, and while in prison, he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker. It's a famous uh, passage. Uh, I think it's Genesis 40, somewhere around there. And their dreams, and, and, and not just theirs, but also Pharaoh's, and, and we see Nebuchadnezzar have a dream that Daniel interprets, and Daniel has a dream that an angel interprets. All throughout scripture, we see examples of these visionary prophetic dreams or visions and the, the thing that is important about all of these uh, visions is that the future is indeed foretold by them, but not in a straightforward, literalistic way. Um, it's not as if the future is recorded on camera and that recording sent back in time to the seer on a Blu-ray disc and they pop it in a Blu-ray player and watch what unfolds. No, the future is foretold in the form of highly um, – uh, esoteric and often difficult to understand symbols, um, and 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 that's why one of the f one of the uh, telltale signs of apocalyptic uh, literature is that you have an angelic or or otherwise divine figure who interprets the meaning of the uh, vision for um, somebody who otherwise can't make heads or tails of it. 
Um, and that was the whole point of Joseph in prison, um, is that he took these bizarre, perplexing dreams of Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker, and then later Pharaoh himself. And he, he looked at the bizarre goings-on in the dream and was able to say, this is what it means in reality. Um, and if it weren't for the interpretation like that, we wouldn't be able to make heads or tails of what that imagery means. So with that in mind, when we come to the book of Revelation, what we have to do is not say, okay, here's something that happens in the imagery, therefore that's what's going to happen in hell. That that wouldn't make any sense. That would be like um, when when uh, Joseph sees when Joseph. Uh, uh, realizes that in Pharaoh's dream, seven cows had come up out of the Nile and were healthy, and then another seven cows come up out of the Nile and were sick, and then ate the healthy ones. You know, we know the real story. Pharaoh, uh, Joseph tells Pharaoh the seven cows, the seven healthy cows are seven years of, fa- of, of plenty, and the seven sick cows are seven years of famine. But if we didn't have that interpretation, we couldn't just say, well, look, clearly there's going to be cows that are healthy and cows that are sick in Pharaoh's future, right? Well, no, obviously not. That's not the point of it. Um, now, none of this is to say that the, what John sees in his vision recorded in Revelation can just be dismissed. Um, no annihilationist or conditionalist says that or, or, or treats it that way. That is, how, however, that is, however, how we're often characterized as treating it. But what it does mean is that we have to exercise great caution and care as we, ex- uh, as we exegete um, one of these scenes in John's apocalyptic vision. Um, and one of the ways that you can treat, that, that you can exercise that kind of caution, that kind of care, is by looking at how the symbols that are used in one scene in the vision, how they're used and what they mean elsewhere in that very same vision. And it just so turns out that the images that we see here in Revelation 14, 9 to 11 appear together later in the very same vision. So, for example, in verse 10, um, he will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. So we've got drinking the wrath of God. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. So there's another, you know, fiery, sulfury uh, torment. That's another symbol. And then the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. So there's another one, ever rising smoke. As it turns out, all three of those images are used later in um, Revelation 18 and 19 to describe Mystery Babylon, this blood-drunk vampiric prostitute riding on the back of this seven-headed, ten-horned beast. Again, we're dealing with apocalyptic symbols here. Blood-drunk um, vampiric prostitute. I love it. <laughs> that's that's a, a phrase I've been saying for years now. It's one of my criticisms. It's a, oh, it's definitely a criticism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, in, in Revelation 18, verse 6, uh, God tells um, his people, repay her double for her deeds mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed so we can see there the escalation you know repaying wrath with god's wrath and then so there's the drinking of god's wrath imagery and then a little bit later we see um in verse nine that people will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning they will stand far off in fear of her torment right so we've got the fiery torment and then at the beginning of chapter 19 a a chorus cries out in verse three hallelujah the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So there's that third symbol of ever-rising smoke. All three of those images all combine here again, later in John's vision, to uh, to depict the fate of the entity represented by this blood-drunk vampiric prostitute. And but but here's the the quint- here's a really critical difference between Revelation 14 and Revelation 18 and 19. Revelation 14:9 to 11 isn't explicitly interpreted for us by John or anybody else. 
but Revela- but the scene in Revelation 18 and 19 is. You see, after um, two of those three symbols are mentioned, and before the third one is mentioned, an angel in Revelation 18, verse 21, says to John, so will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. You see, the angel is saying that this scene that you've just witnessed and are witnessing, John, of this of this prostitute being uh, forced to drink of God's wrath and being and, and suffering torment and fire and smoke rising from her torment forever. This symbolizes the absolute obliteration, destruction, annihilation, extinction of the city represented by that harlot. So. Back in Revelation 14, 9 to 11, then, we don't have to um, try and read the mind of God who gave John these symbols. We don't have to try and speculate as to what these symbols mean in reality. We can just look at how those symbols are reused later in Revelation, where an angel from God tells John that these symbols converge to communicate absolute destruction. So the everlasting torment depicted in Revelation 14, 9 to 11 is not... Um, is not a, a prophecy that there will indeed be people tormented forever. It's a prophecy that God's enemies will be, uh, the, the, the worshipers of, of the false prophet uh, and of the beast will be entirely destroyed, completely destroyed. Amen. Well, so let's let's just keep rolling in Revelation then, because <laughs> you went through 18 and 19. So Revelation 20, uh, I talk about Revelation 20 all the time on this show, but not for this subject. This is the the millennial passage, but there's something interesting here that is often used as a case for eternal torment. And that's Revelation 20, chapter 10. This is after the devil is released after the thousand years, and he goes and does his, you know, conniving, deceiving, and God punishes him and throws him into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Chris, is are we are we looking at the symbol and the thing symbolized? Is is are we in the same place of this is judgment instead of a a literal depiction of torment and fire? Well, yes, it is. It is um, that. Uh, so, for example, the devil here has already appeared in the imagery as a dragon. Um, mm-hmm. The beast is not in the imagery a, a, a an individual human being. It's this this fearsome seven headed, ten horned beast, and the false prophet is a two horned beast that comes up out of the sea. I think it is back in Revelation thirteen after the first beast or whatever. These are symbols in the vision that represent institutions. Um, and their torment forever and ever in the lake of fire um, can't be assumed to be a prophecy of the everlasting torment of the people making up those institutions. That's just not how this kind of um, visionary experience works all throughout Scripture. Um, so, so what we need to do is, again, um, exercise care as we interpret this scene. And there are a few things here that are really important. Um, a co-author and I are going to be uh, we, we've we've got an article that's going to be coming out real soon, um, or so we're told, <laughs> uh, in the Journal of the Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, in which we argue for our view of hell, the one I'm defending here today, from the Book of Revelation. And we're going to be offering a whole lot more there than I'll have the time to do here on just this scene alone. But there are at least two things I think that are worth calling out here um, in this scene. Firstly. It's not only the devil, the beast, and the false prophet that are thrown into that lake of fire. 
Also thrown into that lake of fire are resurrected human beings, but it's not even limited to just them either. It's also in verse 14, death and Hades who are thrown into the lake of fire. Now, this is important because it's not as if death and Hades are here abstract concepts, the, the abstract concepts that we know of as death, the grave, whatever. Um, in the imagery, these are actually conscious entities. If you look back at Revelation chapter 6, the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse scene, um, there's three horses, and then the last uh, horse is unveiled in verse 8. I looked, John says, and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death. And Hades followed after him. You see, in the in John's vision, death and Hades are conscious entities, just like the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are in the imagery, and just like the resurrected dead are in the imagery. Um, but death and Hades aren't in reality concrete concrete objects at all, let alone conscious beings. Right? The death is the fact of being dead, or 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 the the um, existential reality of people dying and dying and you know all throughout generation to generation the kind of um the kind of uh uh vanity that the author of ecclesiastes decries um and hades is the underworld the grave the place of the dead whatever so the question then is what does the what does it mean in the vision that that death and hades these these horsemen are thrown into the lake of fire along with all these other conscious entities uh what does that mean for the realities represented by these horsemen the realities of death and hades well we're not left without an answer to that question just a few verses later in revelation chapter 21 um in verse 4 god from the throne says hathanatas uk estai eti death shall be no more and this is consistent with what Paul had said back in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, death um, is the last enemy to be destroyed in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. And that verb destroyed, katargeo in the Greek, means to cause to cease to happen. So uh, Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15 that when the saved are raised and they are made immortal and they will never die again, and after all of God's other enemies have been slain, killed, destroyed, then death will no longer happen because all who remain are God's immortal people. So the fate of death in 1 Corinthians 15 and here in Revelation 21 is annihilation. That's what the conscious horseman named death um, being thrown into the lake of fire symbolizes, is the absolute annihilation of death. And there's no reason for thinking that it symbolizes that for death in Hades, but doesn't, but actually symbolizes real torment forever um, for all the other things thrown into it, right? That would be to treat it inconsistently. Mm-hmm. So that's number. So that's one big reason for concluding that um, that this imagery of people, uh, conscious entities, suffering forever in the lake of fire actually symbolizes the annihilation of what those symbols represent. That's one reason. But there's another reason. Remember, I, I mentioned earlier how it is that Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream of the cows. Um, after Pharaoh has this dream of seven healthy cows coming up out of the Nile and then seven sickly cows coming up and eating the first seven. Um, we see in Genesis 41 that uh, that that uh, that Joseph interprets that um, in a very distinct and critical way. This is what he says. I'm back in Genesis 41, verse 26. The seven good cows are seven years. Mm. And then he says in verse 27, the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are 
seven years. Notice there's this, there's this, you might call it a formula um, or a, or a dynamic, a dynamic between what is depicted in the imagery and what that represents in reality. And that dynamic or that formula is X is Y, right? X is the thing you see in the imagery. It is, in reality, why, the, th the thing that I'm telling you it represents. And we see that in Joseph's earlier interpretations of, of Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker. We see it in Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We see it in the angel's interpretation of Daniel's dream. We see it in the angel's interpretation of John's vision in Revelation. So this is a very common and um, uh, standard way to interpret apocalyptic imagery um, in Scripture. Now notice how John and God himself interpret the lake of fire in verse 20 in, in revelation 20 14 john says this is the second death the lake of fire um, now the greek here is a bit ambiguous but if you just replace the word this with the lake of fire because that's what what this this way of phrasing it means this is the second death colon the lake of fire that's a way of saying i can replace the word this with lake of fire and the result is the lake of fire is the second death x is y and if there and if and and if people are questioning that because of the ambiguity of the Greek in in 2014, the Greek is not ambiguous when God says the same thing in Revelation 21:8, a few verses later. He says um, he says the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So notice here, John and God himself are both saying that the lake of fire that John sees in the image, the imagery in his vision, symbolizes the second death. Now, that's important for two reasons. One, these interpretations of apocalyptic, apocalyptic imagery going all the way back to, to Joseph and Pharaoh, um, the, the interpretation is always delivered in plain, ordinary, straightforward language. It's not further metaphor. It's not further esoteric um, you know, symbolism. Because that would defeat the purpose of interpretation, right? How are you going to offer an interpretation of what it means if you just give them, them more mystery? Um, <laughs> And, and so if we take the phrase second death and we just treat it as ordinary, plain, straightforward language, we would mean we would take that to mean the second time people die, which is what I believe. It's what you believe. It's not what believers in eternal torment or universalists believe. Mm -mm. But secondly, and, and arguably even more important, the phrase second death is not original to John. Um, there are there's a body of literature from around the time of John called the Targums, and the Targums were um, ancient Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Old Testament. And um, there are a number of places in the Targums where the phrase second death appears. Um, and in some of those cases, it's used in the very same breath as the word Gehenna, that word we looked at earlier. And what we demonstrate in our article, my co-author and I, is that um, the phrase second death, where it's used throughout the Targums, refers to the resurrected wicked literally dying a second time. So when so when John and God himself offer John's readers the second death as the interpretation of the lake of fire that John sees, they are telling the reader um, that second death you already know about from the Targums. And by the way, it wasn't only the Targums. It was the surrounding culture um, used the phrase second death in other contexts also to refer to the uh, literally dying a second time and forever. Um but they're saying that second death of literally of the wicked literally dying a second time in the eschaton and not participating in the life to come, that is what this lake of fire represents in my vision. So, so we have, uh, the, the, so we have a number of reasons, and I haven't even covered all of Revelation no, twenty and, no. and how it supports annihilationism or conditional immortality. But you can see that because the fate of death is annihilation, 
but death is thrown in the lake of fire where presumably it's tormented forever and ever. And because the lake of fire is interpreted as symbolizing the second time people will die, those are just two among several other reasons for concluding that this passage doesn't support the doctrine of eternal torment either. But but it doesn't just not support the doctrine of eternal torment. It actually works against it and works in favor of our view. I totally agree. And this – you know, I've been I've been listening to Chris for a really long time. I know all these arguments very well, but I wanted him to come on and articulate it best because that's I mean that's kind of his mission field right now is rethinking hell. And I would not be able to give you the Greek and Hebrew like he can because he can actually read it. But there's there's another argument that I, I would like you to maybe go over if you don't mind. You always talk about in Daniel, the beasts are thrown into the river of fire, mm. and it almost is like a direct parallel with what we're reading here in Revelation. That's right. Okay, yeah, so I can speak to that. So um, the, the, the beast in the book of Revelation um, has a particular appearance. Um, if you go back to Revelation 13, you see John describing this beast. It had ten horns, seven heads. Um, the beast ha- looked like a leopard, a bear, and, and a lion. Um, and then there and are tigers. Uh, oh my! <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and, and there are some other things too. And what you, and what a student of biblical prophecy recognizes is that the one beast that John is describing in the way that I just did is a combination of the series of four beasts that John sees in his vision, sorry, that Daniel sees in his vision in Daniel chapter 7. So we can see, for example, in um, verse 3, Daniel says, four great beasts I saw coming up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion. And then he goes on to say, I'm skipping a little bit ahead, and behold, verse 5, another beast like a bear. And then the the third beast in verse 6 is a leopard. Um, so you, which you could also say, uh, is a, well, I think that was it. That was the same one that we saw in revelation. So all three of those animals that, um, characterize the one beast in revelation correspond to the beasts in the series that Dan's, that Daniel sees. And we also see, um, that the fourth beast, uh, I'm trying to find the verse here, the, the fourth beast in uh maybe it's maybe it doesn't say the um the seven horns or seven heads but it does say 10 horns in Daniel 7 verse 7 um it the fourth beast was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had 10 horns so we've got the same animals the same number of horns um and actually if you look at revelation 20 again you see that the um the the saints are said to reign with Christ for a thousand years after the beast is thrown into the um, lake of fire. Well, the same idea happens in Daniel 7. So after um, the beast is thrown into a river of fire in Daniel 7 verse um, uh, verse 11, we see right after that that um, the Ancient of Days is presented to God, and to him was given a dominion and glory, a kingdom, and uh, so that all people's nations and languages should, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And then the, the angel interprets that for uh, Daniel in verse 27, saying, um, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. So you can see here that all of these features that we're seeing in Daniel's vision of these beasts reappear in John's vision of the beast. Um, So what this means, what this tells us is that Daniel um, and John are talking about 
the same events, at least when we get to the fourth beast. Um, the, 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 the most you know conservative interpreters will say that the fourth beast in the series is Rome. Um, the previous series, uh, the previous beasts are uh, kingdoms that preceded Rome and that Rome ultimately succeeded. Um, whereas the fourth, whereas the only beast in Revelation appears to be Rome. So Daniel is seeing um, prior to Rome's existence the unfolding of history leading up to Rome, and then John is seeing the fruition of all of that um and and so rome which has succeeded those previous empires is depicted with all the features of the previous beasts so the point of all of this is just to say they're talking about the same when, when we get to the fourth beast of daniel we're talking about the same events in history but symbolized in different ways you see in verse 11 of daniel 7 Daniel looks and sees that the beast is killed and its body is destroyed and given over to be burned in a river of fire. But John sees something fundamentally different than that. He sees the beast is thrown alive into a lake of fire and tormented there forever and ever. We cannot take both of those two visions literally without um, gutting the Bible of its inerrancy. Mm-hmm. Um, the but but the but the beautiful thing is we don't have to because these aren't literal pictures of the future anyway. They are two similar but really foundationally different ways of um, of symbolizing the same ultimate reality. And if you have any doubt that that's what the beast's fate in in Dan's, Daniel's vision is meant to represent, just look at. Um, verse 26, when the angel is interpreting um, the vision for Daniel, he says in Daniel 7:26 to Daniel, the court shall sit in judgment and the beast's dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. The NASB, which is also a great translation, by the way, verse, translates 26 this way. His dominion, the beast's dominion will be taken away, annihilated <laughs> and destroyed forever. So you can see that this picture in Daniel's vision of the beast being killed and thrown into a river of fire symbolizes the annihilation of an institution's rule, of its power. And that's the same thing that we can say the same thing of Revelation 20. The beast being thrown into the lake of fire, thrown alive into it in the imagery, symbolizes the annihilation of the power that the institution had, the institution represented by that beast. So if we if we accept conditional immortality, we can treat these two different and conflicting visions as doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is communicating the same reality, which is the annihilation of a kingdom's reign. Right. And so this is this is how I became, you know, even more convinced was I am very strongly amillennial. I I was very convinced that revelation is doing a lot more than the traditional futurist understanding. And I realized that if this book, this highly symbolic book that's speaking of realities in a symbolic way, is it consistent of me to take most of the book in a symbolic way, except this right here, when there's direct parallels in the old Testament where it's not supposed to be taken literally so that that was very convincing to me, but I guess my question for you is it it's easy for people like you and me who who both identify as all millennial to understand visions and symbolism and what's going on in the literature. Can someone of a futurist variety like a dispensationalist can they 
can they hold a conditional immortality when it comes to revelation or, or does it does their hermeneutic crumble I, I i really not sure if i can answer that for myself well so um i also am not a premillennialist um but what i can say is that there are indeed premillennialist uh, annihilationists or premillennialist conditionalists um i can think of two off the top of my head one is a is an author named robert taylor who's a friend of mine and he wrote the book um rescue from death i think it's called um and uh in it, he 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 is not just a premillennialist; he's a dispensational premillennialist, okay. um, and he is inclined to think, um, or at least open to thinking, that the devil, the the, the beast, and the false prophet here um, are indeed real real uh, conscious beings that will indeed suffer torment forever and ever in the lake of fire. He just is inclined to think that those are probably angelic beings. Um, fallen angels, and uh, and it is indeed only the devil, the false uh, beast, and false prophet who are explicitly said to be tormented forever in that lake of fire. And so, what he would say is, as a what he I think he would say as a dispensational premillennialist is that um, what we see here is indeed the the promise that fallen angelic beings will be tormented forever and ever in a lake of fire, but that um, human beings will be thrown into it and be destroyed. Um, and, and, and you might call this sort of a partial conditionalism, a conditionalism that applies to humans but not to fallen angels or something okay. like that. Now, that's not our view at Rethinking Hell, but it, but it is a um, it, it is one that some conditionalists hold. The other uh, premillennialist I can think of is named Webb Mealy. Um, he wrote a book published by Wiftenstock called The End of the Unrepentant. You can look it up and find it there. It's a really good book, although um, I take issue with uh, some of his beliefs because he is a premillennialist. But he argues – Argues that um, the uh, the um, uh, he, he argues that much of this text does indeed is to be taken literally as talking about a thousand years um, during which Christ will reign on earth with his saints while the wicked will suffer in Hades for that thousand years. And he uses that to um, explain the language of Jesus in that passage we looked at earlier, Matthew 25. But he would say that um, he, he might say the same thing that Robert Taylor does, that it's only the fallen angelic beings who are here said to be tormented day and night forever in the lake of fire. Or he might say that even as a even as a premillennialist, this imagery isn't meant to be taken literally and um, do the kind of exegesis I've just done to show that the that the prophecy here is indeed foretelling um, annihilation. But either way, yes, premillennialism and futurism are indeed views that somebody can hold and be a conditionalist. And I think that's, by the way, one of the things that is really compelling about conditional immortality is that on virtually any intramural Christian debate you can think of, whether we're talking Calvinist versus non-Calvinist, premillennial versus ah or postmillennial, um, cessationism versus continuationism, young earth versus old earth, etc. No matter which one of these debates you hold to whatever view you do, you can still hold to conditional immortality and, be, and it can be consistent with all those other views that you have. Um, so when you embrace conditional immortality, it's not like you have to give up some other view that you hold. And I think that's something that's really powerful. Yes, I found that compelling as well because on my theological journey, you know, I started as a dispensationalist and, and you know, I was raised with traditional Christian values and, and things that are just passed along from generation to generation, whether they be true or not. And I found that 
when I started reading the Bible for myself, and that's not trying to make fun of my parents or my church family or anything, but I, I started to change my beliefs. And when you change one belief, you know, Chris, a lot of times it's like a house of cards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like if one thing falls, a lot of things fall. And one thing changes, a lot of things change. With this, virtually no I, – I, actually, none. None of my other theological doctrinal presuppositions changed at all. I did not have to give up sovereignty. I didn't have to give up the deity of Christ or the Trinity. Nothing monumental. The only thing I had to give up was the idea that the resurrected lost are immortal. So that brings me back to the Gospels in Luke chapter 16, (laughs) verses 19 through 31. This is the rich man and Lazarus. Now, I gotta be really honest. I was never, even when I even when I was in eternal eternal torment, this never bothered me. This never convinced me of eternal torment because it doesn't bode well for them that this clearly isn't about final punishment, even if it's a literal true story. But I'm just gonna read it and have have you exegete it, Chris, and, and walk us through how you look at it. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the donks came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, and so that he may warn them, lest they also come into his place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, Obviously, we're we're thinking of like the intermediate state. Two people have died, and the, the rich man is in this torment and anguish, and what seems to be you know fiery flames, and and the the poor man is being comforted by Abraham, and it's he's he's somewhat peaceful maybe, but this is this a picture of final punishment, Chris, or is at least if this is the intermediate state for the lost. Doesn't this just consistently mean, well, clearly that'll be their final, uh, th- this'll be their, their fate finally after the judgment. This is, you know, this is foreshadowing eternity. Right. Well, so you, you said, uh, before you started reading that, that you'd ask me for an exegesis and, um, 
I frankly am not going to do that, and I don't really feel the need to for the very reason that you said, which is that this clearly is not um, a depiction of final punishment. Um, and there are at least three reasons that we know this is a depiction of the intermediate state, whether it's intended to be taken literalistically or not. Firstly, we have verse um, 22, which, explic- and, uh, which explicitly says that the poor man and the rich man were died, or they died and were buried, all right? The second reason, in other words, this is after they have died. It's not prior to their resurrection. Secondly, the text explicitly says that this is taking place in Hades, Hades, rather than Gehenna, Lake of Fire, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and thirdly, and perhaps most clearly, we have the rich man begging in verse 27, uh, send, uh, send Lazarus to my father's house because I've got five brothers so that he may warn them lest they come also to this place of torment. In other words, you've got a number of unsaved people um, happily going about their business without any awareness that there are people suffering in this scene. And that's simply impossible when we're talking about final judgment, because final judgment is is universal. It's on all humankind. You know, it, it's it's after resurrection and uh, the left or some the righteous are sent in one direction and the unsaved to another. There is no at that point in time. Um, blissfully unaware, unsaved people that need to be warned about hell. So for those three reasons, we know that this is not a depiction of, of final punishment, and I don't frankly see any need to exegete it in the context of this interview, um, because whether you think that this is a realistic story that even if not to be taken literally, nevertheless gives you a generally accurate picture of the intermediate state as one of conscious awareness, or whether you take it as um, – a folk tale that pre-exists Jesus, um, in and and which he's not endorsing its view of the afterlife, but rather he's flipping it on its head to make a point. This is the the view closer to what I hold. Either, in other words, it's not saying anything about the intermediate state at all. It's just telling a uh, a familiar story to uh, and changing it to make a point. Like if imagine if I told you a story about hobbits and dwarves and elves, but and you'd immediately <laughs> recognize that I was talking about Lord of the Rings. There's my analogy. I immediately recognize who I'm talking to as. Well. That's right. Yeah. Well, you would recognize that. But then if I suddenly changed something about Gandalf or something, that would shock you. But and, and you'd get the point I was trying to make, but you wouldn't assume that I was endorsing belief in hobbits, dwarves and elves. So. So anyway, but but that's the point, not the point. The point is, regardless of which way you interpret the story of Lazarus and the rich man, it's it, it can't say anything about final judgment at all. That's not what it's doing. So then the question becomes, well, is there any reason to think that this that, that if this is to be taken literally or or close to, to literally, that the torment here is going to one day come to an end? Well, yes, we do. Firstly, we've already looked at Revelation 20, where the dead are raised up out of Hades. Hades mm-hmm. is emptied at the resurrection. And then Hades is thrown into the lake of fire along with death, which is interpreted by Paul and by John as the annihilation of death. But secondly, um, we have... Matthew 10, 28. If, 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 we, if we believe that um, we have immaterial souls that remain conscious in death, and that's what we're reading in, in Luke 16, then Jesus says that the same lifelessness, the death that, will, that awaits the bodies of the lost after they've been raised, also awaits their souls. And if the soul is, as classically understood, pure consciousness, then if, and if the death of the body renders it inert, inactive, inanimate, lifeless, then the death of the soul would do the same thing to our 
pure consciousness. It would render it inert, inactive, inanimate, lifeless. We would not be conscious anymore. So we have both of those at least um, indications that even if we take this scene literally as if the wicked can suffer in Hades uh, while disembodied, we know that that's going to come to an end in resurrection and final judgment and the annihilation of those people that did suffer there. So, no, this does not at all challenge the doctrine of conditional immortality. Yeah, I, I when I read these these stories in the Gospels, the, the question is, what is Jesus trying to say? Is he trying to give us a detailed picture of the afterlife? Or is this meant to communicate that the people of his generation were not listening to the word of God and they would be judged for it? And that's and, you know, that's that's kind of what's being communicated here. But. I think we've went over enough texts, especially since you actually hit a few home runs of text I was going to bring up while you were refuting other texts that I had brought up. So I think it's time we go towards to some theological arguments for eternal conscious torment. And um, the, the one I hear a lot is God is an infinite being. He's infinitely holy and just and righteous. Therefore, sinning just even – one sin, sinning against a holy God, demands an eternal conscious torment because you have eternally offended an eternal God. Does that does that hold water? The short answer is no, but before I explain why, um, I'm willing to concede that that argument does hold up and that um, – uh, any sin against uh, an infinitely holy God does in, does deserve infinite punishment, because as I've already um, explained, the punishment of death, if it lasts forever, is therefore by definition an infinite punishment. And so, if um, if God's if sinning against God merits an infinite punishment, then eternal torment and annihilation qualify. So um, I'm willing to in in, in most sort of. Uh, off-the-cuff conversations, informal conversations, I'm willing to just say, sure, yeah, it's infinite punishment, but my view qualifies as that. Mm-hmm. That having been said, I don't think the argument holds up, and I think there are two uh, reasons for why it doesn't. One, um, and this is maybe less decisive, but still important, I think, it isn't true that God is infinitely holy or infinitely good or infinitely righteous. Um, it, it, it's more accurate to say he's perfectly holy, excuse me, perfectly righteous, perfectly good. There, is, there are no flaws. There, there's no degree, there's no imperfection in him at all. Um, by way of analogy, think about a circle. Nobody talks about a circle being infinitely round, right? We, we talk about a circle being perfectly round. And the same is true of God's holiness and righteousness. He is perfectly righteousness, uh, uh, perfectly righteous, perfectly good, etc. And so this, this whole offending him demands an infinite uh, penalty thing doesn't really hold up in the first place because the the better way to apply the analogy would be to say that offending God, offending a perfectly holy God merits a perfect punishment, but that wouldn't tell you anything about the duration. Um, But there's a second and more more decisive reason for rejecting that argument, and that is the concept of degrees of guilt and of punishment. If any sin against an infinitely holy God merits an infinite punishment— then by definition, there are no degrees of guilt or degrees of punishment. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, slapping uh, your fellow man unjustly would merit the exact same infinite punishment as um, r- raping and uh, torturing and murdering a young child. But we know that's not the case. We have scripture itself saying that people will be punished according to their uh, to their 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 deeds um, and and indicating that some sins are worse than others. So this argument about infinite God and therefore infinite punishment can't hold up because it would render degrees of guilt and punishment um, uh, irrational. But I lied and said there were two. There are th- there's a third reason <laughs> that I just remembered why this argument doesn't work, and that's that it focuses only on the status of the offended party and ignores the status of the offender. You see, very often this argument is um, defended by saying something like, if a um, if, if you punch uh, the the your neighbor, you're not going to be punished as badly as if you punch the president. Right. So um, so the status of the one that you're that the crime is committed against can affect the um, severity of the punishment. And that's fine as far as it goes. But just apply the same exact logic to the offender. The um, adult who punishes or who punches the president will be punished worse than a um, 12 year old who punches the president. And a 12-year-old who punches the president is going to get is punished worse than a 5-year-old who punches the president, and so on and so forth. In other words, the gap between the status of the offender and the offended, um, that gap is what determines the severity of the punishment, or at least can, not solely the status of the offended party. And the gap between any finite human being and the infinite God is infinite. That gap is infinite. Mm-hmm. So even if you want to say that the um, infinite holiness of God, thereby, because of his status, merits a harsher penalty than if you were um, sinning against an ant, equally true it is that you, because you're finite, uh, you can't merit an infinite punishment against that God because the gap between your status and God's is infinitely wide. So for those reasons and probably others that I am not able to think of right now, yeah, that argument just does does not hold up. But I just want to reiterate, even if what I've just said, which is unassailable, (laughs) but but even if what I said just now was not true and and, and your listeners still think that a sin against an infinitely holy God merits merits an infinite penalty, they can just remember that death forever qualifies. Right, because we're – we are often mischaracterized as saying, oh, well, you know, they're – they're tortured for a little bit, then they pay for their sins, and then they're annihilated. But that is not what we are arguing for. We are right. saying that the death penalty is the punishment. Now, it might be inflicted painfully, but the punishment is eternal death. That's right. Uh, and, and and let me add one thing. If if Sometimes my people who hold to my view are accused of not taking sin seriously enough. <laughs> um, but but I just want to pose this to your to your listeners. Which God takes sin more seriously? The God who hates it just enough to quarantine sinners in some dark, gloomy co- corner of the cosmos forever, but, but granting them immortality so they can live and sin forever? Or the God who detests sin so much that he will finally and forever obliterate all sin and all sin doers? It seems to me pretty clear which God takes sin more seriously. It's the God who won't permit sin to keep happening in his creation forever, but will finally and decisively eradicate it. 
I, I completely agree. All right, for the next theological argument in favor of eternal conscious torment, I hear Dr. James White use this all the time, <laughs> and I've heard you correct him over and over and over, but I'm going to have to present it to you now because my listeners probably don't listen to Dr. James White uh, or you. So <laughs> re- Reformed anthropology, and that just means how the Reformed Calvinistic uh, person views human nature, fallen in Adam, okay? Reformed anthropology informs us that man is totally depraved and will not cease will not cease to be depraved during final punishment. So if man keeps on sinning in the eschaton or the afterlife, does that demand eternal conscious torment because the argument is well a lot of people just think when you die or the judgment your your sins over and you're just you're just there standing before God but because you're so totally depraved the, the wicked are so totally depraved their sin will be amplified and their their hatred for God will be amplified therefore they should be eternally punished right so this argument would work if uh, if we thought that the punishment for sin was conscious pain Mm-hmm. So if if the punishment for sin were conscious pain, then while you're being inflicted uh, with conscious pain as punishment, um, then you, while that's happening to you, you're going to be still sinning and having a sinful disposition and thereby accruing additional punishment that you must be uh, uh, given in the form of more conscious pain. And then while that's being inflicted upon you, you sin some more and so on and so forth. And so, yes, if the punishment for sin were conscious pain, then the ongoing sin in uh, sinning while being punished with conscious pain might arguably be grounds for um, requiring them to continue to be consciously tormented for all eternity. The reason why I emphasize the word might there is because it, scripture never depicts or foretells the, the that the punishment in hell will be based on sins in hell. Um, all throughout scripture, the final punishment is spoken of as something that is payment for what has been done in this life. Right. And um, there's no reason for assuming that sin committed while being punished in hell um, would require additional punishment. But nevertheless, I'm fine conceding to the rationale. The problem is that we don't think the punishment is conscious pain. We do think that um, people, while they are being killed, will experience conscious pain. That's what happens when you're killed on the electric chair, the noose, the firing squad, whatever. Um, But the punishment itself is death. And my contention is that any sin committed, any crime committed, while being killed or leading up until the moment you're killed, is swallowed up in the penalty of death itself. Um, So by way of analogy, imagine you've got a death row criminal, all of his appeals have gone denied, and he's had his final meal, and now he's being marched to the electric chair down the green mile. and let's say that as he's being marched to the electric chair, he's he's flailing and thrashing, and he manages to break free for a moment and assault the guards who were you know um, who who had who were walking with him down to the electric chair. He assaults them, causes them great injury that's going to cost thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of medical bills or whatever. And then and then he, they manage to get him back under control and take him the rest, or, or they, they manage to get him under control. Nobody thinks that at that moment the criminal justice system is going to return him to his cell, be tried for multiple assaults, 
pay the time in prison for those multiple assaults, and then finally be taken to the electric chair to face the death that he had already been judged, sentenced to much longer before. Nobody thinks that. They know that if the if, if after he's wrestled back under control, he's dragged to the electric chair and killed, all those assaults, all those any, – any crimes he might have committed while being dragged to the electric chair um, are swallowed up in that totally severe, um, ultimately severe punishment of death. It covers everything that happens, um, every sin committed leading up until the moment that the criminal breathes his last. So since we think that the resurrected wicked will die in hell and their punishment will be everlasting death, that can count. That that can accommodate whatever sins are committed even in hell, even if uh, sins committed in hell merit punishment. Especially since even those sins will themselves merit the penalty of death, since, as Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Right, and and listeners, I want you to catch that these these questions that I've just asked, they all assume that kind of punishment is is pain, and that's that's the punishment. And and in fact, you'll hear very seasoned theologians sometimes wander into heresy about what Jesus suffered on the cross as being sufficient for the atonement. But that's just not what the New Testament says. It says he died. He died. Now he suffered, but the suffering alone is not what redeems you. It's his death and resurrection. But uh, you can hear Chris talk about that in depth on many of the Rethinking Hell Live YouTube videos and things of that nature. Uh, we're getting down to the final few questions here, Chris. Now, this one actually is, was compelling to me, and I still have trouble with it every now and again. But does does conditional immortality flatten the meaning of punishment? and death used throughout both Old and New Testaments. For instance, the apostles interpret the Old Testament for us quite a lot, and they'll take a, something in the Old Testament and, and give it life in, 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 in what Christ did or something like that. So is final punishment maybe given a more spiritual and in-depth articulation than it was in the Old Testament? Or is, or is what we're doing just totally flattening death and punishment to the same thing it always was, and it's not giving credit to the apostolic interpretation? Uh, the short answer is no. There's nowhere in the New Testament where authors or figures in the narratives um, uh, quote one of these texts from the Old Testament that have the, that they apply to final judgment, and and after quoting them or in the process of quoting them, expand upon them to demonstrate that they are interpreting them in a in a creative way. You know, when the the reason we know, so, so take for example um, Isaiah's prophecy that the virgin will give birth to a son. Um, scholars recognize that although the New Testament authors see there a, a, a second, truer fulfillment um, in the form of Jesus, who was actually born of a virgin, nevertheless, um, they recognize that Isaiah has a more immediate referent in mind. Um, one that is not the Messiah, but is just evidently a, a maiden, a young woman who gives birth to a son, and that's supposed to be a sign to a more immediate audience. Um, and, and we see other, you know, numerous examples of this. And whenever New Testament authors um, quote or cite or allude to these places in the Old Testament and expand on them or twist them in a creative way, excuse me, they they do so explicitly, and 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 they're doing so, of course, under the uh, excuse me, authoritative inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
But you don't have anything like that with these texts in the Old Testament where they are um, – where there's any indication that they're being creatively creatively uh, interpreted in a different way. Um, you don't see it in Mark 9 where Jesus quotes Isaiah 66. You don't see it in Jude 7 or Second Peter where they allude to Genesis 19. It just – nowhere when the Old Testament is alluded to do the New Testament authors expand upon it and and, and give any indication that, they, that they're using that Old Testament scene or, or – or or, or language and repurposing it to communicate something fundamentally different. You don't have any of that. So in order to make this argument, um, a believer in eternal torment has to assume that the um, language of death that the New Testament authors quote or allude to in talking about final judgment, they've got to assume that that language originally referred to physical death but carries on a spiritual meaning in the New Testament. Um, they have to assume it, and they can't demonstrate it. And I am not willing to uh, make such an assumption and cause and let the explicit testimonies in other places of Scripture override it. So, for example, when Jesus says in Luke 20, he says to the to the Sadducees that it's those who are deemed worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection of the dead who cannot die anymore, implying that those who are not counted worthy will not will be able to die. He's not alluding to or quoting from some Old Testament passage there that, that where where he's where he could be reinterpreting it to mean something more spiritual. Um, when when Jesus uh, quotes uh, Isaiah sixty six twenty four and Mark nine forty eight, it's right after he's um, also talked about this contrast between going into life maimed rather than not going into life at all. You know, the, 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 there's just no evidence. And then, of course, like I said, in, in, in 2 Peter 2.6, it's explicit. By turning Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes and condemning them to extinction, God made them an example of what awaits the ungodly. Um, so, no, there's just, there's just no indication whatsoever in the New Testament that the Old Testament's language of death as referring to physical death is being expanded upon or reinterpreted, repurposed to mean some sort of non-physical spiritual death uh, when it comes to the eschaton. There's just nothing like that. Gotcha. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, does the Bible make a distinction between physical and spiritual death? And I'm thinking of Genesis 2.17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So a lot of people say, well, they spiritually died that day, therefore their spiritual death is carried on to somehow mean eternal conscious torment i'm not really quite sure how that's all drawn up in my how they, how they make that correlation and even as a calvinist i affirm saying that we were dead in trespasses like ephesians 2 1 says so does the bible have a different definition of death depending on the context where you could actually read death as more than just death like eternal conscious torment i think that's i think that's usually the argument made yeah. So I don't think so. Um, so. Let me address those two individually. First, Genesis okay. 2.17, um, where God tells Adam, on the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Um, that phrase, on the day, is being is assumed by defenders of eternal torment to mean 
on the very day that you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. It is then that you shall surely die. And so they'll say, look, Adam and Eve didn't fall down dead on the instant, the, the very day that they ate of the fruit. They didn't die for another almost 900 years later, or more than 900 years later. Ergo, the death they experienced right there on that very day must have been non-physical. The, the problem with that argument, well, there are several problems with it, but the one that I'll focus on just in the time we've got here, is that that phrase, on the day, bayom, in the original Hebrew, is just a Hebrew idiom or expression meaning when. Um, imagine if I uh, told you um, in 21st century English, um, when you eat too much, you'll, you'll get fat. <laughs> I'm not saying the instant that you overeat, you're going to balloon up to be morbidly obese like I am. No, I'm saying that the one leads inevitably to the other. Uh, imagine if I said, when you commit capital crimes, you get the death penalty. Again, I'm not saying that you get the you get killed the instant that you commit a capital crime. It's that the one inevitably leads to the other. The same thing is going on here. God is saying, when you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the of, of the of uh, good and evil, you will surely die. Um, and that's true. They when they uh, fell, when they ate of that fruit, they were kicked out of the garden. Genesis 3:17, I think it is, or not 3:17. Uh, Genesis 3. Um, 22, God says, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then the narrator cuts God off and says, therefore, God sent him out of the garden of Eden. So by kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden, God secures their eventual demise. So it's true exactly what he had warned them about. When you ate of the, true, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. He's just not saying on the instant that you eat of it, you will surely die. That's the mistake that traditionalists are making. And if there's any doubt about that, just look at how the exact same phrase is used in Deuteronomy 27.2. Moses, right before he dies, tells the people of Israel, on the day, Bayom, you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And then he goes on to describe this elaborate ceremony that they're supposed to um, uh, perform on Mount Aval when they get there after crossing the Jordan. Now, later in the book of Joshua, we see this happening. We see them cross Jordan. But guess what? It's a good two, three, four weeks before they get to Mount Aval and perform that ceremony. And yet when they do it, it the text says that they did it just as Moses had commanded. Now, you might say, uh, the, the, the hypothetical objector to what I'm saying might say, yeah, but they just they, they didn't they weren't obedient to Moses. Um, they didn't do it on the day that they crossed the Jordan. They did it several weeks later. That's that doesn't mean that the text is saying they were a whole completely obedient to Moses. It's just saying they obeyed him when they finally got there. But they didn't obey the first part about doing it on the very day you crossed the river. But the problem with that is um, if you look at the terrain of the Middle East from crossing the Jordan to Mount Aval. And you consider that we're dealing with something like two and a half million untrained, uh, mostly untrained, you know, average men, women, and children. Scholars recognize there's, it would take days at least of nonstop marching to get from the Jordan to Mount Aval. So Moses couldn't have meant on the very day that you crossed the Jordan perform the ceremony. He's just saying, when you cross the Jordan, perform the ceremony. And they did. It just was it took a few weeks. So, so no, the, the death warned uh, to Adam in Genesis 2.17 is, uh, is not a reference to anything other than ordinary physical death. Now, as for texts in the New Testament like you were dead in your trespasses and sins, it always baffles me that people think that that's – they assume that that's a reference to some sort of other kind of death other than physical death um, because – 
Um, imagine, I mean, we're all familiar with the phrase, you're dead to me. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, If you're a fan like I am of movies and if you're a fan like I am of the Karate Kid movies, you'll remember that in the second Karate Kid, which takes place in Okinawa, um, the the uh, bad guy is becomes estranged with his father. And that's exactly what the father says uh, to the son. You're dead to me or I'm dead to you. And we and we talk that way today. But they're not they don't mean I'm actually dead in any sense or that you're actually dead in any sense. They're saying you're as if dead to me, or I'm as if dead to you. So what we see in these handful of places where living people are spoken of as dead is we see them using the language of death figuratively or metaphorically um, to describe the condition in which the living person is, but they're not referring to some actual separate kind of death from physical death. They're just using physical death as a metaphor there. But when you look at the eschatological passages about final judgment, there's no indication that they're using the language of death metaphorically or um, or figuratively or anything. Should this be an issue that Christians divide over? And when you answer that question, go ahead and you know sum up your case for conditional immortality. But I think we, you and I both agree this should not be divided over. But I know you've been highly mistreated about it. So if you could just give me your thoughts about that. Yeah, this is not an issue worth dividing over. I do think that there are some universalists that should be divided from because they hold to like an outright pluralism where everybody goes to heaven no matter what they believe or whatever. But there's a significant portion of um, uh, universalists that are evangelical and who believe that the only way out of hell, the only way that the, that the lost will get out of hell is through repentant, r- repentant saving faith in Christ. And it's only when they have that uh, faith and that they are saved and rescued from hell, they just think that eventually everybody will. Um, but apart from uh, the, those heretical universalists, it seems to me that this is not an issue worth dividing over. And the reason is because, number one, there's no express statements in Scripture condemning it, uh, condemning one view of hell over another as heresy. Uh, number two, none of the ecumenical creeds and none of the early church fathers, uh, none of the ecumenical creeds um, define eternal torment as an essential of the faith. They don't include it at all. And none of the church fathers condemn one another anathematize anybody for holding to alternatives to um, the view of hell, hell that that particular church father has in mind. In fact, it's not until the Council of Constantinople in the 500s that Origen's universalism is arguably condemned, but not annihilation, not conditional immortality. Um, so so there's nothing in the ecumenical creeds or the, or the writings of the church fathers that suggests that this is an issue worth dividing over. Um, it doesn't violate any of the – it doesn't logically require the denial of any essentials of the faith, um, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, salvation by grace through faith alone, the resurrection of the dead, uh, on and on. Whatever you consider to be the essentials of the Christian faith, this uh, – taking a different than uh, average view of hell does not require that you violate any of them. And as we've already talked about, it also doesn't require you change your mind on any other um, uh, view where there's an acceptable range of views within Christianity. Um, so that's thirdly. Fourthly, there is a um, – if, if the first annihilationists or conditionalists appeared within the past few hundred years or something like that, um, but prior to that point, everybody was a, a believer in eternal torment, that might be some – there might be an argument to be made there. But we have in the writings of the earliest church fathers like Ignatius of Antioch and Clement of Rome and the Epistle of Barnabas and the Didache and others, you've got uh, affirmations of conditional immortality and annihilationism. And then you see uh, – you do see by the time of Augustine that the doctrine of eternal torment 
torment um, becomes the dominant view and remains such even to this day. But beginning in the Reformation and increasingly so thereafter, respected theologians have started to call into question the doctrine of eternal torment, including John Stott and John Wenham and John Stackhouse. That's a lot of Johns. Um, and, and Preston Sprinkle, who co-authored Racing Hell with Francis Chan, who at the time came out in uh, support of eternal torment, but has since become a conditionalist. It's, the list is, is very long of people throughout church history who've held to this view. So there's no reason so there's no reason for thinking it's novel and therefore heretical. Um, so no, it just simply is not something worth dividing over, and Christians on all three sides of this debate should treat each other with love and respect and be willing to fellowship and minister one another despite their disagreement on this topic. Um, as for a case, you know, I'm I'm pretty comfortable with the case I've made from the very texts that you've um, that you've cited. But what I but what I will say is, uh, I'll encourage people to go check out Matthew 10:28 again. Um, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. That Greek word translated destroy, everywhere it's used in the Synoptic Gospels, in the way it's used here, it refers to slaying or killing. I would encourage people to check out John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not be made immortal and live forever in torment and hell. Uh, wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> would not perish but have everlasting life. I'd encourage people to check out Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Check out Romans 1, where Paul says that people who do this long list of vices know they deserve to die. You know, yeah. um, uh, check out Luke 20, where Jesus says that it's only those who uh, are deemed worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead who cannot die anymore. Check out Genesis 2 and 3, where the tree of life is what would have secured Adam and Eve's uh, ongoing everlasting life. But when they're excluded from it, they eventually die. And that tree of life reappears in Revelation, where only the saved have access to its fruit, indicating that only they will be made immortal. Check out 1 Corinthians 15, where immortality is a blessed gift of God given to those who are who need to be made fit to inherit the kingdom of God. That's what immortality does for them. It makes them fit to inherit the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 15. Why then would the wicked need to be gave, given um, immortality? Uh, because they're not going to be made fit to inherit the kingdom of God. Um, on and on it goes. And then and then revisit those texts that we've already talked about and, and, and consider the exegesis I've offered because um, the traditional view of hell rests on a very small number of passages in scripture. And the passages... Uh, and and it, the interpretations of those texts that the traditional view of hell relies upon are extremely questionable, facile, empty, surface level, and vanish when you just take even the slightest more close, uh, closer look at these texts as we've talked about today. And so um, there's really no good biblical reason for believing in the doctrine of eternal torment at all, and that's even – for somebody like me who has no moral problem, no philosophical or or emotional problem with the doctrine of eternal torment. I'd be perfectly content if that's what I thought that God had um, uh, promised he would do. And I was content with that for nigh a decade or over a decade. But at some point you have to, you have to bend your knee to scripture, even if it means that some of your fellow Christians um, are going to mistreat you and divide from you um, I mean, it happened to Luther, and it's happened to all sorts of people all throughout church history. You've got to take a stand, and I would just encourage listeners to take their stand on the Word of God rather than on the traditions of men. Awesome. Chris, thanks for coming on and talking about this. And everybody, I hope you take this case seriously and uh, not divide over it. Until next time, it depends on how you look at it. <laughs>